have you ever done an escape room? They've become really popular in the last 10 years. My family, we get these little escape rooms in a box every once in a while. And so we work together and we try to figure them out in our home. And they're really interesting because they've got all these different clues and different ways. They're really like brain teasers. And they can be real confusing as you're trying to put the pieces together and figure out what in the world does this mean? Some of the clues are bizarre and strange. You're, you're working with them and almost arguments can develop because you're trying to determine what in the world, how, how can we solve this thing? Well, this morning we're jumping into our next minor prophet. It's the prophet Zechariah. And as you read through Zechariah, it almost feels like going through one of these uh, escape rooms because it's so bizarre and it's full of visions and then there's messages and there's these oracles and, and you're just trying to wade through all this to what in the world is Zechariah talking about? And it's a long book. I mean, as the minor prophets go, this is one of the long, it is the longest book. It's 14 chapters long. And so as we kind of get into Zechariah the next two weeks, it's going to feel a whole lot more like a flyover than maybe some of the other minor prophets had because we're trying to wade through this and determine what does it mean and at the same time I want to give you some handles for how you can understand this book and how it applies to our lives so with that I'm going to hop around a lot because when you really dive into Zechariah and once you're able to get some of those handles you realize this really is a rich book. It's perhaps the most significant of all the minor prophets. It's going to be quoted or alluded to over 67 times in the New Testament. It is the most Christological book of any of the minor prophets. In fact, it's Jesus Christ himself, the pre-incarnate Jesus, who's going to speak to Zechariah and give him these visions. It is incredible. It'll say the angel of the Lord came and he's having this conversation with them. And whenever you see the angel of the Lord, you just got to go back to Genesis because he identifies himself as God. He speaks for God. And then you even see it in Zechariah as he's saying, hey, I'm the one who's going to take the iniquity of you all. And so when you see that, this is the pre-incarnate Jesus giving these visions to Zechariah. I mean, it is wild. So you're in for just a treat these next two weeks as we try to get into this and understand it. But recognize it is extremely difficult. It's one of the most challenging books of any in all of the scripture. With that, I'm going to dive in, but we're going to be hopping all around this morning as we focus on Zechariah chapters one through six. Let's go ahead and get started right at the beginning because the first six verses of the book do really kind of give us the theme of the book. Zechariah chapter 1 verses 1 through 6. The prophet writes, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Idu, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes would I command my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. 
As we've kind of made our way through the Minor Prophets this year, I hope you've seen this theme. It, there's this, this continuity throughout the prophets, this return to the Lord. I mean, that's ultimately what all the prophets are trying to get people to do, return to the Lord. And if you return to me, I'll return to you. And this, again, right at the beginning of Zechariah, you see the same idea, return to the Lord and I'll return to you. It's been said different times in various ways, but the message is the same return to me. I'm angry with you because of your unrighteousness, because of your sins, but I'm extending to you this hope that you might repent, that you might turn, that you might seek refuge in me and be healed and be made right and be brought back into this right relationship. I want you to look at verses five and six again. They're very interesting. It's almost as if the prophet is taunting the people here. Your fathers, where are they? The prophets, do they live forever? He's saying, hey, you know, you look up to your fathers, right? You look up to the people who've gone before you. Well, where are they now? They're all gone. They've all died. And these prophets, these men that you've respected, who've spoken truth to you, what happened to them? Well, they're not here anymore. They died too. And then he says in verse six, you know what really does last? You know what really does endure forever? It's my words, my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets. They live, they, they, they will overtake your fathers. Did they not overtake your fathers? I mean, you think about this picture. It's an incredible picture and maybe it describes you or someone you know, someone just kind of running, 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 running as fast as you can away from God, away from truth that you know to be true and, and commands that you know, hey, this is how I ought to live. This is how I ought to respond. But you're running from all that because you don't want that truth to dictate how you live your life. You'd rather just live your life your own way, however you see fit, whatever seems good to you. He says, did, did not God's word overtake your fathers? <laughs> What's Zechariah talking about? Well, you need to understand, Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet. He's a contemporary of Haggai. You remember when we talked about Haggai? The people, they'd come out of Babylonian captivity and... Haggai is telling the people, hey, you've got to build the temple. Uh, you got to get to work building the temple. And so at this time, this is when Zechariah is speaking. And so who were these people's fathers? Well, they were the people who were in Babylonian captivity. The people who were running from God thinking, oh, God's not going to do anything. This is all talk. We've heard the prophets for hundreds of years now. I mean, what, what, what's going on here? He's not going to do anything. We continue to live life our own way. And then what happened to the fathers, their fathers? They ended up in Babylonian captivity. Did not God's word overtake them? Everything that God said would happen, did it not happen? And so this is the challenge now to these people. You need to trust God's word. You got to trust his statutes. You got to trust his commands. See, Zechariah, he, he's wanting to make sure that, that you're not putting your hopes and dreams, whatever that you want. You trust in God's word because it lasts forever. That's where your hope is. You trust God's word because it lasts forever. Your fathers, the prophets, all of them, they're just temporary. God's word remains. You know, this most fundamental problem uh, remains for all of us. All too often we think, where is God? What's he going to do? Is he really going to show up? It doesn't seem like he's listening. It doesn't seem like he cares. And for a time, you know, sin is enjoyable, doing our own thing. It is a little bit fun. For a time, sin even seems like the right thing to do. It even makes sense to us. Like, well, yeah, of course I would do that. Uh, and this is true for a person. 
This is true for a family. This can be true of a church. This can be true of a community. This can be true of a nation. And so this is what's happening in Judah. It's what's happening to the people. But eventually the word of the Lord overtakes them. It overtakes the individual. It overtakes the community. And so long after all the nations, all the kingdoms, all the kings of the world have fallen, the Lord and his word remains. And that's the theme of the book right here. You want to understand the book of Zechariah? Turn to the Lord because, his, because he and his word remains. Zechariah, like we said, he's a contemporary of Haggai. And the problem is the people have not returned to the word of God. They've, oh sure, they've returned to building the temple. Like they did what Haggai told them to do, but they still haven't really returned to the word. And that's what Zechariah is hitting them with. You got to turn back to God's word. This is what you got to trust in. This is what you got to believe in. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into the book with you now. There's the overview that kind of sets up the whole book. This is what it's about. But now it's going to be here. Here's why it's about this. And here's how all, here's how this truth kind of gets played out over the book. And to dig a little deeper this morning, we're going to look at these visions, these apocalyptic visions, these night visions that Zechariah has. And you need to know that this book is not a book with a whole lot of imperatives. There's not a whole lot of, hey, do this, do this, do this, or don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. No, it's not so much. There's implied, yes, but not so much explicit, here's what you ought to do and here's what you ought to not to do. Instead, rather than Zechariah telling the people what to do or what not to do, he shows them what God is doing and what God will do. And he allows that then to just kind of weigh on your heart and inform the way you ought to live. He does not tell the people as much as he shows the people. And he does that by, here's a really quick outline of the book. He uses eight visions, plus then you get a bonus vision at the end of chapter six. And then you have four sermons and then you have two oracles, okay? Two just, hey, here's the truth of the Lord. Um, and so this morning, we're going to focus on these visions, these eight visions plus the bonus vision. So uh, just be prepared to kind of flip around the first six chapters because to understand the visions, you got you to gotta kind of go back and forth here a little bit. As you glance down in your Bible, uh, you always see section headings, right? Okay, now those section headings are not inspired. They're not scripture. They're just people, translators. They're translating things. They say, hey, this will be helpful if you understand that this is the section that's coming up. So these visions, they form a pattern. Okay, and they, they correspond to each other. It's a pattern called a chiasm or a chiastic structure. Key, it, it is the Greek uh, letter, it's, it comes from the Greek letter key, which for us in English, it looks like an X. And so this is the, the structure of it all. You got this X structure, and that is you move from the outside, and this corresponds, and you take a step down and in, and take a step down and in, and then you get to the middle. And that's kind of what what is going on here. And so verses or visions one and eight go together. Visions two and seven go together, three and six, four and five. And then the 
meat of it all, the really important part, is visions four and five. But let's go ahead and get to where how the prophet's kind of building up to that by looking first at visions one and vision eight. Vision one, I'm just going to be kind of jumping in and out here. Vision one, it's a vision of the four horsemen sent by the angel of the Lord. Again, the angel of the Lord is God the Son. Whenever you say the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, God the Son, pre-incarnate Jesus, and he's sending these horsemen patrolling the earth, and they find that the earth is at rest in verse 11. And you and I say, oh, that sounds pretty good. You know, the verses, this, the earth is at rest. This might sound like a good thing. But then you keep reading. Let's look at verse 15 here in chapter 1. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. So this is not a good kind of rest, okay? It's not like, a, oh, I'm just resting in the Lord. I'm just, just walking in step with the Lord here. No, this is an ease here with, hey, they're just saying we're, we're prosperous. We're good. Everything, everything's fine for us. We don't need anything. You know, we're, we're just self-sufficient. And now we see the Lord who's ready to be gracious with his people. And that means punishing the nations for those who dealt harshly with Judah. And this vision is about God's reign over the nations. And that's the vision of chapter one, that he sees all these nations that are at ease. And, but they've come against Judah. And so God, he sent his horsemen out and he said, no, 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 no. I'm going I'm to come against you. And so that's vision one, this, this vision about God's reign over the nations. And then this corresponds with the last vision, vision eight. Okay, so you got to flip over to chapter, chapter six here. And here we see a vision of four chariots. Okay, let's look at verse seven. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. The first vision had four horsemen patrolling the earth. And now here in the eighth vision, there's four horses patrolling the earth. And they're going as God commissions them. They're his emissaries and they're, they're going to subdue God's enemies. The first vision was about God's role as, as superior sovereign over the nations. And here the eighth vision is about how God will conquer and subdue the nations. And so that, that's the top and the bottom of the X, okay, of the chiasm. And so then you go one step down and one step in, and we look at how visions two and three correspond to visions seven and six. Okay, I'm going to group these two together. If we had time, we could kind of pull them apart and, and see even more correspondence. But for the sake of time this morning, I'm just going to put two and three and seven and six together. I'm giving you the general, but there's definitely more, more specifics we could go. Visions two and three. Uh, you have the visions of the horns and the craftsmen, and then you have the vision of a man with the measuring line. In vision 21 of chapter 1, or verse 21 of chapter 1, uh, we see the Lord casting down all those who come against Judah. And all those nations, they're all going to be scattered. So Assyria, Babylon, any of these nations who come against Judah, they're going to they're be scattered, they're going to be done away with. And then the third vision, let's look at verse 5 of chapter 2. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. The Lord will protect Judah from her enemies. Now skip down a little more, verses 8 and 9. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. The Lord, he's going to oppose all those who come against his beloved. The main point of visions two and three is that God is going to subdue all external opposition. Any external opposition, God, he's going to subdue it. He will, he will subdue it for all his people. And so that's visions two and three. And again, we're working down the X. So we want to see what corresponds to visions two and three. And that's vision seven and six. So let's check that out. Uh, let's go ahead and we'll read the seventh vision. Okay. It's Zechariah chapter five, verses five through 11. The prophet writes, then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the lead cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork and they lifted up the basket between the earth and the heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. So you can see these visions are a little strange, a little difficult to understand, but let's just kind of look at this. There's this basket and it's almost like pop goes the weasel. I mean, you know how that thing goes, right? Like dun 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 and all of a sudden like pop and then, so this is happening right you're going like this and all of a sudden this woman pops up out of the basket and the angel of the lord pre-incarnate jesus says this is wickedness like thrusts her back down in the basket now this isn't calling all women wicked here okay it's a particular woman and perhaps it's similar to the whore of babylon from revelation so some have like speculated that but the point here is you take that basket you take her to shine to, to shinar okay or in other words to babylon you get her out of judah oh and nothing to do with her here okay so we want all the wickedness we're getting all the wickedness purging the wickedness out of the land okay and then there's the sixth vision let's look at this one i, I want to read this one to you as well for or at least part of it verses one through three again i lifted my eyes and saw and behold a flying scroll and he said to me what do you see I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width is 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. So visions two and three, you have God subduing all external opposition. Here in vision seven and six, it's all about God subduing all internal opposition. So you have the woman in the basket. You have all these curses that's going out over the face of the whole land. So all this, we're subduing all that. We're being done with all that. Any evil that's infiltrated Judah, God is coming against that. And so that's, that's what we see here in these visions. I want to recap the structure for you that we've seen so far. 
verses verse or, or vision one, you have four horsemen patrolling the earth. Vision eight, four horses patrolling the earth. And again, this demonstrates God's sovereignty over all the nations. Visions two and three, God opposes all external opposition. Versus vision seven and six, God opposes all internal opposition. And that brings us, of course, to visions four and five. And again, this is the heart of it. This is the meat of it. And so that's where we're headed, right here, right to the middle, verses four and five. Vision four, if you're familiar with any of Zechariah's visions, it's most likely this one. Again, if you're not, don't feel bad. Most people aren't. But if you're familiar with anyone, it's probably this one. And it's in chapter three, and it's a vision of the high priest Joshua. And he's accused by the accuser. And the Lord steps in and says, hey, he's like a brand plucked from the fire here. And, and now he's standing before the Lord and he's just wearing these filthy garments. And so the Lord says, hey, let's get these garments off of him and let's clothe him with pure garments. And he says, why am I doing this? What, what, why is this important? Why? Because behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. See, this is a great picture of God's imputed righteousness, how he clothes us in his righteousness, in his glory, a righteousness that is not our own. And that's the point of this fourth vision, that God will conquer the people's sins. <laughs> and the question for us is, do we really believe that? Do you really believe that God will conquer your sins? I mean, that's quite the statement. Because you can't take those sins back and you know the damage that's been done and you just can't undo that. And you know the hurt that's developed because of it. You know the shame, the guilt. And, and how, how, how is that conquerable? Well, it's through a great price. Through the death of the only sinless one. The death of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The pre-incarnate one who's now speaking to Zechariah. Why are all these visions so confusing? Why are they so difficult? Because these concepts are so huge and so hard to understand. I mean, who can do this? Who has the power to exhibit sovereignty over all the nations? Who is it who can actually come and oppose any external forces? And who can at the same time oppose any internal forces? And who ultimately can conquer sin? Well, it's Jesus. Trust Jesus to conquer your sin. You understand, Zechariah is such a Christological book, so much pointing forward to Jesus. And then you have vision five. It's another interesting one. This is a golden lampstand, and this is another strange vision. You, you, can, you can read it in, uh, in chapter four. I'm going to give you just two key verses to kind of bring out the meaning of it, okay? Uh, there are verses 6 and then verse 10. Let's go ahead and read those. The prophet writes, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord is Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then skip ahead to verse 10. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So the people, they're trying to rebuild the temple. And it looks like an impossible task. I mean, it'd be difficult for any group of people to be able to develop a structure like that. I mean, even people in our day, as I understand, this is a complex building to build. It's not just anyone could, could do this. And that's with our tools and our equipment and our computers and everything. And they didn't have any of that. 
And here they are trying to rebuild this temple. And so the Lord gives them this promise that it's not going to happen by your might. It's not going to happen by your power. How's the temple going to go up? It's by my strength, declares the Lord. And then there's verse 10. Don't despise the days of small things. Sure, you think you're just digging out a foundation. You're looking at today and it's just, man, I'm just moving one brick and one brick and one brick. And at the end of the day, you're looking at this thing. You're saying, man, what, what do we even do today? How in the world is that supposed to become a temple? I mean, how long have we been at this? And look at this. It's never going to get done. We're never going to finish. Don't despise the days of small things. Maybe you're looking at your life and each day is just full of diapers. Each day is full of paperwork or meetings or homework. And it feels so monotonous, so unending, so even meaningless at times. Don't despise the days of small things. Because there will be a day when you come out with a plumb line or, or a level and, you, and you're making sure that this thing is squared off as you put the last brick in and then the temple is complete. And you're going to be really happy, really grateful for all those days of small things because the brick fits. You don't have to redo this thing. You don't have to tear it down and start all over. Why? Because you didn't despise the days of small things. There will be a day, hopefully, when that baby that's been in diapers is now walking down an aisle. And you're going to be certainly grateful for all those days of small things. Oh, there's, there's going to be a day when the homework is set aside and then you're sitting in that office of the job that you've always wanted. And yeah, you're going to be thankful for all those days of small things. A day when all the meetings have been completed and now the project is done. And you'll be thankful for the days of small things. Don't despise the days of small things. And isn't this kind of how life works? That the days are long. I mean, they just seem to drag on sometimes. But the years are short. And the decades? I mean, where did they go? It just moves so fast. Now, in this vision, particularly, we see two anointed ones who are to come. And they are, they represent anyway, Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor. And God, he's going to supply the, the strength and the leaders to accomplish the work of his temple. And so vision four is God's going to conquer people's sins. In vision five, it's he will overcome their weaknesses. And this is the heart of these visions, that I'm going to, I'm going to overcome your sin and I'm going to conquer your weakness and unlike many other prophets, when you have this list of, okay, here's what you've done. It's really bad. I mean, look at all this. And now, okay, here's what you ought to do. Okay, you know, here's how you turn from all that. Here's what you ought to do. Zechariah doesn't really do that. Instead, Zechariah gives these visions and he shows the people, this is who God is. This is how God works. And he allows that just to weigh on their heart and implicitly enforce how they then ought to live because of that. Now, to drive home the fourth and fifth visions, at the end of chapter six, there's like this bonus vision, okay? It's a, so it's a ninth vision. It's, it's, it's almost like a bonus vision, but it correlates to the fourth and fifth vision. And it's a vision where Joshua, the high priest, is being crowned king. 
And this is a shocking moment because throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the king has his office and the high priest has his office. It's always been two different offices. They're, they're never to be confused and they're never to be united. And yet here, Zechariah promise, prophesies right at the end of all these visions that one man will be both priest and king. All these confusing visions. Do you see how they're coming together? Do you see here who they're pointing to? They're pointing to Jesus. All these visions, bizarre, strange, sometimes difficult to understand, they ultimately point forward to Jesus. And next week, we meet back together, we'll see just how, even more just how rich the Christology of the book of Zechariah is. Heavenly Father, we read a book like Zechariah and it's confusing, it's strange, it's difficult for us to understand. And yet, God, after we're able to pull back some of the layers, we're able to see that it all points to your son, Jesus. And then we realize just how difficult it is to understand a God who really can conquer sin, a God who can, who can oppose external threats and internal threats, a God who is sovereign over all the nations. God, you are a God like no other, a God we cannot fully comprehend, a God who is at times, even to us, confusing. So God, we ask for your grace to help us know you more and to represent you well to the people around us. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.